The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. When I got my Keurig Brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. The right name had to fit my many sides, from the bold dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig Brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info. We're about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited and honored to introduce to you my very good friend and special guest this week, Chip Rosenblum. Chip is an award-winning filmmaker and the co-owner of the St. Louis Rams. Welcome to A Current Life, Chip. Oh, hey, Jimmy. Thank you for having me. Well, on another note, uh, before we begin, uh, I recently lost a very special person in my life, and Chip and I wanted to dedicate this episode to my best friend, Frederick Marison, and his father, Manuel, who passed away yesterday, but his spirit and his love for his family and community will live on forever. He will be deeply missed and continually loved, and we want to dedicate this hour to him. So uh, for our listeners, Chip, uh, I wanted to give people who are unfamiliar perhaps with you and, and, your, and the Rosenblum family and their involvement and ownership of the St. Louis Rams NFL team, or for those that are unfamiliar with the Shiloh series that you created, I want to kind of give you a proper introduction. Chip is an owner and vice chairman of the St. Louis Rams. Beyond football, he has built a highly successful career in the motion picture industry over the last 20 years. He is the founder and owner of Open Pictures. He's written, produced, or directed more than 20 feature films and documentaries. His late parents, Carol and Georgia, were both NFL icons. This shows about life's journey and the ups and the downs that we all have to overcome to get where each of us is meant to be. And so, as we often do on this show, on this note, I'd kind of like to start with the early years, Chip, and ask you, what was life growing up uh, uh, as a little boy? Uh, I know you traveled a lot and spent a lot of time in different cities. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, um, I was born in 64 in New York City, and uh, my parents were just obviously really highly achieving people and uh, very busy, and so a lot of a lot of my childhood was spent the early the early childhood we moved to Miami and New York back and forth um, my parents traveled quite a bit so we were my sister and I were with my grandparents um, and we were in Miami Baltimore New York pretty much all, full time 
you spent a lot of time on tra- on planes, I guess, traveling back and forth, huh? Right. You know, it was an interesting experience because you have this one world, which you know, the, my normal sort of well, normal but eccentric um, grandparents. Um, my my grandmother was uh, actually she had an all girls or- orchestra, and she uh, um, was the gal about town in St. Louis had a radio show there, and my grandfather was a prize fighter. These were my mom's parents, uh, my mom's stepdad and, and mom. And they really raised uh, my sister and I in the very early years. Um, and I think that was not untypical back then. Um, and so I would go on the weekends really mostly to see my parents um, up until I was about five years old. And that was, was mostly Miami. And then I'd get on a plane and go to New York because uh, was, it was time to, to go see a Colts game or you know, go be with my parents. Um, that all changed when I was about five, and and we moved in with my parents. Now, now, as a as a young boy, you 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 were grew up with an illness, and I'm sure that helped shape you. I, I we've interviewed a lot of people, and one thing that's been kind of a thread that runs through everyone's life uh, is some obstacle or adversity that they faced. And I've always had the expression, adversity is something that if uh, uh, you overcome it, it gives you great strength if it doesn't kill you. And, uh, you know, so... Uh, well, no, I, I think that's really true. You know, I I, I don't know why things happen, um, but uh, growing up was, you know, really actually a very healthy kid. Everything was, was great, um, very active, and, and, you know, always sort of... I've always, um, you know... I always wake up on the right side of the bed, and uh, and after my father passed away when I was fourteen, um, and it's so funny that you get me to talk about this because you know I would say probably most people that know me don't know this, but I I had a severe uh, ulcerative colitis as a as a teenager uh, up until my early twenties, um, and uh, and you know it's a, it's an autoimmune illness, and I, I do think that these things shape us. I think that they, uh, you know, they give us a different perspective on, on purpose and meaning and things like that. And, and, uh, you know, you can, you can take it in a negative way and, and feel sorry for yourself because, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a healthy 200 pounder right now. could use lose, <laughs> lose 10 to 15 pounds, but I was 137 pounds and a really sick guy. And, uh, and, you know, I just felt so blessed that, um, I was able to overcome that, um, and you know, I, I learned a lot during that period of time because you know when you're in and out of hospitals and and doctors' offices and things like that, you you, you see a lot people a lot of people who are in worse shape than, than you're in. Well, you know, I I I tell our listeners it's great to have have your own show because you can talk about anything, and I, I've been after uh, this for our listeners. I've been after Chip to come on the show since I started the show. In fact, he's been instrumental in helping me. Uh, he introduced me to Sheila Ward when we had a great time on the show with Sheila. And uh, but Chip, uh, you know, is uh, what's fascinating about growing through life is you. I've been fortunate to have friends like the Marison family since I was a little kid, since we were seven years old. And yet, it's hard when you get older. You make business relationships, but. You don't always find the kind of people that you wish you had known and been able to spend time with your entire life. And for our listeners, I will tell you that Chip is one of those rare, special people. Uh, you're 
you well, that's that's you you have come into my life and had a big influence on it and and you mean a lot to me and we've become good friends and and so well, i guess in that re- way i got you to talk about a few things the feelings <laughs> are very mutual you know i mean probably people who are listening to the show and have listened to it in the past know that uh, just what a special person you are so you know thank you um i i do think that that is true i think that as we get into our 30s and 40s and get out of college and and get married we tend to sort of gravitate towards business friends and and our kids um you know their their parents um the the kids friends parents and um and you sort of make friends for certain reasons it's very rare to find somebody um like you Jimmy who's uh who is like family the day you meet him and uh I that just I I feel very fortunate to know you well I appreciate that I uh I really do it means a lot to me I grown very fond of you and of Kathleen and your family and and you have the highest character. I, I want to ask you um, what it was like to be the son of a probably one of the most famous owners who certainly deserves to be in the Hall of Fame and certainly we will do everything on this show to make sure one day that happens if the show continues for a long time. He, uh, he was one of the, the, the key forces behind the merger of the leagues and one, one, I think the Super Bowl, um, or maybe more than one, but certainly beat. Uh, what was the team that he beat? Uh, the they beat the Cowboys. That's they right. Beat he beat the Cowboys. The and they Cowboys. Had, well, two of the most pivotal games in NFL history um, were Super Bowl three and Super Bowl five. Super Bowl, Super Bowl three was when the Colts lost to the Jets, and uh, essentially it was you know a tragedy for the Colts, but it it made the NFL um, because it it was it's what caused the merger. Um, it legitimized the merger, I should say. Um, yes. And and then in '70, when the merger took place, my father um, was one of the architects of that, and he um, he agreed along with Pittsburgh and Cleveland to move conferences or or leagues at the time because the conferences were really like leagues. And uh, and so he then two years later successfully won the Super Bowl, which was a, a big day for him. But you know. You asked the question what it was like growing up with somebody like him. You know, when you're when you're a little kid and you see somebody like my dad, you know, I I didn't really recognize that he had any sort of special influence or um, you know anything aside from he was a fun guy to be around. You know, um, but he was also somebody who, you know, one of the, one of the things I used to do is I used to take his reading glasses and take them apart and. And he'd be chasing me, trying to get those reading glasses, and you know, um, and it, it was the type of thing where, where a guy like where a guy like that, nobody would ever see him in that situation. You know, where where he's chasing a little five-year-old, um, and I don't think he imagined being in his 60s running around chasing you know little kids. Um, but I I I guess that growing up with uh, with him was ultimately not about who he was in the public eye but just privately personally he was a very kind decent man you know he he treated people just with so much respect and and uh he was very generous and really one of the most significant things that i that i learned from him is that you know when you're dealing with anybody you treat people the way that you'd like to be treated and you treat them with respect and and that was significant and and uh so you know there was there there were a lot of 
in, in retrospect, really interesting things that, that happened um, just by being his son and being in that environment. But, but the best times were just the family times when, when you know, because he, he was just a person like everybody else. He was down to earth when you were with him alone. Yeah. He was very down to earth. I mean, he, yeah, could, what, and he could talk for, to anybody. You were fortunate because of your grandparents were really down to earth as well, and, and, and that gave you a chance to be grounded, I assume, from the, the high-profile football world that your father and mother were in, and then you would go to Miami or to Hollywood right? be right. able to my, spend time with your grandparents. Right. My, my, my grandparents were... Um, you know, just very special, loving people that, that uh, in a way, you know, they, they got married in 1960, and I think that my grandfather, um, the last thing he expected was to, to have two little kids um, that he was helping to raise, um, but he treated us as, as his own. And, and going into that world was, you know, my grandmother was extraordinarily eccentric, and, and she had flaming red hair, she was a musician, she was an entertainer. She was Miss St. Louis, 1926. You know, wow. she just had a an incredible spirit. She recorded an album in 1969 that um, became a cult classic, actually, into outer space in the year 2000 with Lucia Pamela. And you know, so we would we would go out and she'd do her shows, and then she she even taught music at our elementary school. And so we had a very close bond with them, and we would go out to. Uh, to a restaurant called the Painted Horse, I still remember it as a kid because it was all you can eat. And uh, um, it, you know, as a kid, uh, it, you just see that that money doesn't really bring any sort of happiness. It's it's, it's who you're with and how you're spending your time. Um, and I think that that was an interesting uh, lesson. I'll tell you a weird story that um, my my dad was an older dad. He was 57 when I was born, and um, he went to Penn, and he was kind of a, a baseball star there. And uh, as a uh, as a football player, he was he was not great, but he loved football. and And his best friend was the town hero, um, a guy named Marty Brill. And my grandfather um, and my dad told me the story years later that uh, my grandfather was in Philadelphia at the time, and he and and his family were Italian immigrants, and they had. Uh, they had a little store, and my dad and Marty Brill were trying to get out of Philadelphia to Baltimore, and they needed a car. And they used to frequent the store, and they asked to borrow the car. They, and Billy, my grandfather, knew who Marty Brill was and said, all right, I'll lend you the car, um, but I know who you are, and you know, bring it back. Now, 30 years later, the guy whose family owned the store, my, my grandfather, ends up marrying my grandmother, and... Thirty years later, my dad ends up marrying my mom. Oh my god! And it's just—it's it, one of those weird, you know, serendipitous things that you just say, "Well, the universe is acting in an interesting way." Um, I don't know why that story came to me, but it just was. Uh, um, and those two guys, my dad and, and my grandfather, were born a year apart, and they were from totally different backgrounds. And I would say that when my dad was around my grandfather. He just was in his element. He just had such a great time because they were both athletes and they both just love life. And that was, you know, that was always fun to see. 
So, you know, as I, uh, and I know this about you, so I'll ask the question. Yeah, Chip is known for having won a tremendous amount of awards in film work, and, and, and you were a graduate of the USC Film School, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about you went on to work for Aaron Spelling uh, and then Mace Newfeld Productions. Uh, but I want to know what was your passion? What was the wild moment that helped you uh, choose film as your as your passion and eventually music, which is your real passion? Well, we we came out to L.A. when I was eight years old, and um, and then then it was L.A. and New York. So we were traveling traveling quite a bit. Still, I was one of those kids who, you know, had the the card around his neck at the airport. Um, but uh, <laughs> And uh, and you know I just thought getting on a plane was like getting in a car. Um, for but I, I missed. I was one of those kids that missed a lot of school and and for travel. And you know it's it, as a, as a parent now I you know I, I'm saying wow that that was crazy. It's but it's not necessarily wrong. It was just different. But when we came to L.A., um, everybody was talking movies. You know, and I I was always writing and I was always interested in in telling stories. And then suddenly my uh, the grandparents got me a Super 8 camera, and out of that, I just saw this thing. You know, I, I think maybe there was uncertainty and, you know, lots of unusual things in my childhood, and suddenly I have this, this camera, and I can go buy film, I can go get my friends together, who all were into this too, and, uh, and we would create little stories and then screen them for each other, and, and we had total control of that environment, which is... Uh, I think that that was the wow moment for me as a as a little boy that suddenly, you know, I I could be a storyteller and you know relating to other people through telling stories is just I think you know in our DNA all of us. Well, you're you're first of all uh, we're going to take a break and when we come back we're going to talk about your learning through some of the greats like Aaron Spelling uh, and what life was like for that, but. You're so fortunate to have found your way and your passion and your wow moment early. I, it took me a long time. I tried a lot of different things. I don't think I found it until I was about 28 or 30 years of age, but um, you're fortunate. And I think some of the things that you went through, some of the things that you shared in a lot of different environments really helped shape you. Um, so it's a real honor to have you on the show. And, and uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jimmy Gould. Uh, you're listening to A Current Life, brought to you by Smartwater, Ohio Midwestern College, and AdSpace Mall Networks. We're joined with Chip Rosenblum, and we'll be back in a minute. Please stay tuned. Experts. Call toll free right now. 1 866 472 5787. And ask our all star team to answer your questions. That's 1 866 472 5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. When I got my Keurig Brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. The right name had to fit my many sides from the bold dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig Brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info. The stove, the refrigerator, all the pots and pans, the sink... 
Sure, take the kitchen sink too. Yeah, pretty much everything in the kitchen I could live without if I had to. Except, of course, my Keurig Brewer. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig Brewer is the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life. This is Jimmy Gould, your host, and today I have a very special guest here with me, my dear friend Chip Rosenblum, award-winning filmmaker and co-owner of the St. Louis Rams. Before we took the break, Chip, I wanted to let our listeners know a little bit about your work. You went to USC Film School, and then you went on to work for one of the greats, uh, Aaron Spelling, and then later Mace Newfield. Can you talk a little bit about your life with Aaron and the well, impact it had on you? Yeah, no, I, I, I worked for Aaron um, while I was at USC, and uh, it was an incredible experience. It was really a, a transformative experience um, creatively, artistically, because it was a really unique time in television. Um, Aaron had a, had a business that I don't think could exist today. He, he essentially was half the programming on ABC, and he functioned as, I imagine, the old film studios did in the you know, 30s and 40s and 50s, um, where they had you know, a, a, a factory, in a, in a way. But, but he was an incredibly generous giving person and and every kid that worked there you know could come in and see dailies they'd comment on stories he was always interested in you know because his his shows really appealed to a very broad demographic and so he he was open to anything and and the the man that i worked for there was a guy named duke vincent who was the quintessential television producer and and still is he's an amazing guy but um i think that Part of the what it, what influenced me at, at Aaron Spelling Productions and with working with Duke was that it was collaborative within Aaron Spelling Productions, but it was independent. And I think that's why I pursued and why I continue to pursue a more independent film career than something you know that's that's films by committee. Um, and so there was a great deal of freedom that that Aaron had and and. Uh, and he had just an incredible way with story. And, and you know, you, you sit there and you don't realize it at, you know, 19, 20 years old. And, you know, later on you say, wow, he just would change a, a script in a second. And, you know, we're not talking about Shakespeare, but we're talking about somebody who, who could really um, nail a scene and, you know, and, and create things that, that really matter to, to our culture in a way. And, and uh, so he, he, was a, he was a great guy, and Duke uh, is a great guy. And you went on to work uh, then with Mace Newfield, which was a different type of situation because that was more studio funded, Right, well, correct? Mace was working um, on Hunt for Red October when, when I um, went to work. He was working on the script. Um, they'd gone through like 20-something drafts of that script 
for Paramount, and there were all the you know ups and downs of of what happens with a movie when you're doing a big budget movie, and you know he was he had he had the great sense to buy that book when nobody was printed by the Naval um, Academy Press, and uh, and he picked it up, and and it became a phenomenon, and you know I saw what what he went through with you know all those drafts of of the script to try and get it right and and uh you know i was i was there um for a while you know about a year or so um a couple years and then i wrote a uh, a spec script what they call a spec script that um you write you write it without any promise of getting paid and we ended up selling that to mgm i wrote it with a friend of mine we ended up selling it to uh mgm and uh that was my first movie what was that called? That was called Instant Karma, and that, it was that got great reviews. I'm it, told it did get great reviews, and it was a and it was a really fun movie to do. Um, we um, we had a we had a great time doing it. We were 25 years old and didn't know what we were doing, and and uh, um, in a sense, and they had kind of a senior producer they put on it, and um, some people uh, <laughs> I joke with them, MGM. That was I, I can't remember if that was their first or second bankruptcy during the release of Instant Karma. So <laughs> the movie was only a, a million dollar movie, but it uh, it uh, ended up bankrupting the studio. But uh, after that, I um, I suddenly was a producer. You know, it's well, sort of, I, I want to talk about that because actually we had uh, a kind of a friend in common. Um, you went on a year later in 1991. And followed with Across the Tracks, which marked the first starring role for uh, someone I have a great deal of admiration for, Brad Pitt. Who well, I yeah, well, Across the Tracks. With. I'm sorry, go ahead. And and Brad was uh, impressed me because he was so down to earth, and I got to know him. And and you did Across the Tracks, which was really his first starring role. Well, that's right. You know, I mean, Brad, and we we made that movie right after Instant Karma. We shot it. Uh, God, I, I'm, I'm thinking it's fall of '89 or early 1990. Um, didn't come out for a year later. Right. Um, and uh, but but that was we really. Ricky Schroeder is a is a wonderful guy. He's you know a great family man and and uh, you know actually an inspiring person. And and Ricky was 18 years old, and I was 25, and we're making this Ricky Schroeder movie. About a high school kid who, you know, is from, you know, a, a poor family, and and he's the the bad brother, and there's a good brother, and Carrie Snodgrass played their mother, and we were casting, and and Brad Pitt walks into the room, and he'd never done it, you know, he'd done some TV, I think he'd been on Dallas or something like that, and and he was a like a supporting guy in a horror movie, and and he walks in the room, and you see. Wow, this is this guy's somebody special, and <laughs> yeah. I'll never forget. He he leaves the room, and and Ricky says, you know, if I cast that guy as my brother, everybody's going to be looking at him. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, Sandy Tongue, who's the director, um, and Ricky and I, we just said, you know, this guy has something. And and uh, I remember he, Brad had long hair. We had him cut his hair. Came back, blew everybody away, and uh, and. He was just a just a wonderful guy, and and uh, I remember my mother came to the set one day, which was in Compton, which um, is a you know pretty tough neighborhood in L.A. and uh, and uh, my mom was sitting in the stands watching the running scenes, and and Brad came up to her and and uh, he was saying things about 
you know, how tough it was in, in Hollywood and, you know, but how he was going to stick to his ideals and all of that. And, and, uh, he's just shown himself to be such a great man. And, uh, and I, I met him, I met him during Fight Club, uh, which was done with Arnon Milshon. And right. We, right. we spent some time in, in, uh, Las Vegas and I just saw just an incredible quality. I mean, uh, he has just a big heart and, um, and, and so much talent and, and by the way, I, I've watched Across the Tracks not once, but a few times, and I thought it was a terrific movie. You actually won awards at the Houston and Philadelphia Film Festivals. So. Yeah, we, you know, uh, Sandy did a great job with that movie, and and uh, and we we got lucky in the sense that Carrie was was uh, she was such a wonderful actress, and and to get Ricky and and Brad, who are just both great people. Um, I mean. I'm, you know, I could I only have great things to say about that movie experience. And, and Ricky, you know, did something that I think most people in, in Hollywood should look at and emulate. First of all, he emerged from being a big child star to being a, a good person and a successful adult. But but he had the right to soul above the title billing for that movie. And he recognized that it was, they were playing brothers and it would be kind of silly for that for, for it to be a Ricky Schroeder vehicle, this was before Brad was Brad Pitt. You know, it was he was an actor, and I went to Ricky and I said, Ricky, you know, I I think you guys are brothers. You you should you know maybe share credit. And his agent said no, and, and Ricky said no. You know what? I think he's right. Let's make this let's make this about the two of us as brothers. And you know, back then I didn't know what I was doing. Now I look back and say that was a big thing for Ricky to do. I mean, that was a that was a big deal because you know and. I mean, first of all, he had the wrong age, and he should have had me. But aside <laughs> from that, uh, uh, kidding. But um, uh, that's a big give, and that was a smart move by him. Um, you know, I want to ask you because I don't know if a lot of people really realize. Uh, first of all, you are an independent filmmaker, which um, I'm friendly with a, a few of them, and and that's a very special quality because you maintain. Just a lot of control over what you do, and you you are betting because you don't have a studio necessarily, you know that that that's involved with you. Maybe they may get involved afterwards, and we've done a picture together. And you know um, what I want to ask you about is is the writing and producing of the of the well known and celebrated Shiloh series that you did, the Shiloh trilogy, which uh, which won you the Genesis Award. Uh, for a movie about animal abuse. Uh, it was a huge honor that you must be very proud of. Tell us about the whole Shiloh experience. Well, Shiloh, Shiloh happened. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember if my sister gave me the book or if I picked up the book for one of my nephews. But I remember picking up the book and and deciding to read it through. And uh, and I, my son was a baby at the time. And, and, uh, and, I, and I read it and I was like, wow, this is really... This is really about more than just animal abuse. This is about you know how how a boy deals with the truth, you know, and and in, in that story, it's really is it all right to lie if it's for the greater good? In the sense, the greater good was you know the welfare of a of a little beagle, you know, and uh, and it it just kind of uh, you know was one of those things that I was going to try and produce and and get made and. Next thing I knew, I couldn't really get anybody to write it and didn't have the money to, to do that. So I said, you know, well, maybe I'll write it. And then next thing I know, um, you know, I was talking to, uh, to 
um, Carl Borak, who's a great friend and great producer, and I was talking to um, Robbie Little, and um, and they were like, you know, why don't you go just direct this yourself? And and you know, next thing we know, we put this l- really little movie together, and uh, and we did quirky things. I mean, we you know, we cast Michael Moriarty as the dad, you know, which was a really unusual thing because I wanted to have a a dad who was strict, and you know, we cast the great actor Scott Wilson um, as uh, as the bad guy, and you couldn't meet a nicer guy in the world, and yeah. you know, and he's he's known for In Cold Blood and Shiloh, you know, and, yeah. and uh, every time and, my dog watches the movie, he wants to bite him. So and and yeah, exactly, exactly, and, and kids were you know, kids have gone up to Scott, so you're so mean, you know, um, <laughs> and uh, and you know, the Rod Steiger, um, right, said you know. I'd love to be in the movie, and it was the thing just kind of came together, and and uh, and got a great kid for for the movie, and and we're we're sitting a kid named Blake Heron, um, and and Ann Dowd played the mom, and we're, you know we're, we're sitting here making this movie, and and uh, right before production, we were talking to cinematographers, and this is how quirky my sensibility is. I just finished watching Twin Peaks um, after mm-hmm. two years, and. I said, I'd love for that guy, whoever shot that TV show, to shoot this family movie we're doing. And I think everybody thought I was crazy, but um, he, he, the guy had four kids. His name's Frank Byers. It turned out to be just a gift for the, for the movie because uh, it didn't look like a normal family movie. It, it, looked like, uh, it, it looked like the guy who shot Twin Peaks shot this movie, and, and it created a, you know... And those are things I just feel lucky, you know, because it's it's who you collaborate with, and and uh, and they, you know, they made me look good in that. You one. had you kept the heartbeat first of all throughout it. Uh, you it didn't look like a small budget movie at all. It looked like a you, you did a great job. In fact, Warner Brothers, uh, I guess, attests the fact that you made the highest return that's ever been made for a independent film, family film. Yeah, they, well, they, they they call it the most successful independent family movie. Um, right. You know, that wasn't that wasn't studio made. Um, and uh, you know, I I don't know the exact facts and figures, but I'm just really proud of um, of what we did. And it's one of those it's one of those things that uh, there's a fellow named Seth Willinson who is incredibly he's a great friend of, of mine, but he's also an incredibly intelligent and, guy and of mine and yeah. of yours exactly. Yeah, right. and and he designed something that around that movie you know because when we went to sell the movie disney channel was our only buyer and uh and he said no you went to the wrong places you this is this is going to be a home video phenomenon because people you got to make sure that he that you tell him to listen to the to the uh oh i will download of this so that he i I will will he to me the next time i talk to him (laughs) (laughs) well he i love seth so he, he he created um you know this this thing, um, and uh, you know, with with Carl and and uh, yeah. and Warner Brothers, ultimately, that where they allowed us to do a theatrical, and everybody was shocked that the theatrical was successful. And then the video comes out, and uh, and next thing we know, you know, um, Warner Brothers at first wouldn't let us put their logo logo on it. Next thing they know, that uh, next thing we know, we're getting calls saying, make, make sure our logos on it. So what was it like winning the Genesis Award? Well, I, that was a big thing for me. You know, I I have a, a a love for animals, and I you know I think it goes back to having 
you know, quirky grandparents and a mom who just was a huge animal lover. And, and uh, the Genesis Awards, um, that was just, a, you know, of all the, the awards that movie won, that one was really, really special because, you know, people dedicate their lives to helping um, animals and, and, and to, to get a media-related award where we're sending a message out um, in a way without really sending a message. We're telling a story, and next thing I know, um, you know, the, the Genesis Awards, you know, acknowledge that. But, but the the thing that's really interesting about about the the results from Shiloh, nothing to do with with financial success, and nothing to do with you know um, even critical acclaim. But you know, I, we still get letters and emails, and we still have people talking about these three movies and how, you know, their kid used to kick the dog and now doesn't. And, you know, and they had family conversations about it. And, you know, um, just just awareness about animal rights. You know, I think that it was that Einstein quote that you can judge a civilization by the way they treat their animals um, is so apropos to, to what my experience was on Shiloh is that, you know, everybody, you know, I mean, as Scott Wilson once said to me, said they, they don't get mad that he killed somebody in some movie, some person. But you know, the fact that he shot at Shiloh, they're really they're really angry at him. You know, well, maybe maybe you and I will make a challenge where our audience is is growing uh, every week, and we're in 180 countries with this show. Wow! And if oh. people that listen to the show would go out and just just adopt one rescue dog, which is Absolutely, will do them more good, even more than the dog, because I've done that. His name is Buddy, and uh, you have a number of them, I know. And <laughs> it, it is just—I'm out of my mind. I'm crazy. I, yeah. Right? They know, though. I we, mean, we, you, we they, have a when they walk into your home, they know that you rescued them, and they are the most loyal and most beautiful animals in the world. Um, that's so I that, commend that, you that's on so that. That's true. That's so true. And we have we have uh, we have several um, adopted dogs. One foster dog right now. Um, and I call it Foster because we've not officially adopted her, but I think we're going to end up doing it. Well, we're going to. Uh, I want to mention one other thing that right now you have a, a project in limited release in, uh, called Fuel, which is a documentary which won multiple awards, well, including that, yeah, Sundance. Yeah, we're we're on we're on Netflix now. We're out of we're out of release, but okay. Um, yeah, we um, that was a um, that was a, a labor of love. Um, it's a it's a movie about alternative energy and. Um, Josh DeKell, it really tells his story. Um, and uh, if, if anybody wants to look for that, it's on Netflix and um, thefuelfilm.com is, is the website. Well, we'll, uh, we'll come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about kind of growing up uh, in the two worlds that you kind of grew up in and about your family and finding a balance. Uh, this is Jimmy Gould, your host of A Current Life. Uh, we're going to take another break. We're joined by Chip Rosenblum, my dear friend, and filmmaker and co-owner of the uh, St. Louis Rams. This show is brought to you by Smartwater, Ohio Midwestern College, and Adspace Mall Networks. Please stay tuned. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Do you have career aspirations that seem beyond what you think you can afford? At Ohio Midwestern College, you can transform your hard work into a bachelor's degree in business administration, education, or Christian ministries. Call 1-888-887-4300 or check out www.omw.edu to learn how you can afford a fully accredited degree today. Ohio Midwestern College. Affordable. Professional. Genuine. Our open enrollment starts today. Call us now at 1-888-887-4300 or on the web at www.omw.edu. That's 1-888-887-4300 or on the web at www.omw.edu. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life. This is your host, Jimmy Gould. I'm here with my dear friend, Chip Rosenblum, award-winning filmmaker and co-owner of the St. Louis Rams. Uh, we actually uh, often take questions or get emails, and there was an email that was sent to us, and so I'll, I just want to read it because it was a quote that was about your father uh, that Joe from Indianapolis sent. He said, um, I'd like to share a quote that was written about Mr. Rosenblum's father. It said, um, and it was on. It was made by Mike Curtis, uh, former Colts linebacker at the time. Your father made the trade, I think, for the Rams. It was Mike Curtis that said, "I hate to see Carroll go. He was a damn good owner. It wasn't the coaches who made Baltimore a winner for 14 years." Well, you certainly don't hear players speak that highly of owners <laughs> often enough. And do you have like personal memories that you'd like to share about that? Because you know, you, you, it was such a great time to be a Baltimore Colt. There was such amazing, you know, as you talked about with me when we were offline about the third and fifth Super Bowls, you know, could you tell our audience a little bit about that and just what that experience was like? Because those were really two pivotal moments in the NFL. Well, yeah, the, the uh, you know, Super Bowl three. Um, were we offline when we talked about that? Uh, I think we were, yeah. But, uh, yeah, the um, Super Bowl three was the... Uh, was you know the heartbreak for my for my dad because you know the '68 Colts were, were considered I think by a lot of people to be maybe the best football team ever and uh, and they go to the Super Bowl in '69 and play the AFL Jets and lose. Now that game became pivotal because it legitimized the AFL, and so. In one respect, it was a tragedy for the Colts. In another respect, it was a, an amazing thing for 
for the NFL. And you know, as far as my father was concerned, he was you know one of the three owners that that moved leagues, moved conferences, he moved from um, the NFL to the AFL, and then became NFC to the AFC, all under the NFL umbrella. And and you know, it was he was part of the whole design of the four four five, which was uh, the the new alignment because there were sixteen. NFL teams at the time and 10 AFL teams, so how were they going to make that work? There's a lot of resistance, obviously, in the NFL at the time, but um, it turned into an amazing uh, an amazing thing for, for the sport. And then two years later, as an AFC owner, the Colts beat the Cowboys in Super Bowl V, and that was a huge highlight because that, those were the standards my father set, which were you know championships. It was not about getting to the playoffs. It was about winning championships. And, uh, you know, you have a guy... Who grew up um, from, in a successful family, my dad, um, and who became more successful, and then could have done anything, and he chose uh, to to not pursue his other businesses um, once he really got involved with the cult. So it, it consumed him. It became it became his passion, um, and uh, and so you know, growing up around. The players and the coaches and the you know it was it was a real family um, experience um, and you know it transferred over to the Rams. I mean, within a year of taking over the Rams, the that team that that he formed became uh, a playoff team and they won their division six or seven straight. I think seven straight years. Then right. ended up going to the Super Bowl the year that he passed away. That was we a great dug- Super Bowl that they lost to the Steelers. We dug up our own quote uh, from Sports Illustrated, uh, and this was spoken by him during the time that he owned the Colts, and I believe after they won a fourth league title defeating the Cowboys in Super Bowl V. This is the quote. It says, after the first year in football, I found that all of all the things I've ever done, this is the thing. There's nothing more rewarding. You have everything wrapped up in one bundle. You meet much nicer people than you do in business. You meet the public, and you must learn to look out for them. There's no place where your word is more your bond than in sports. You'd never find 14 men who deal as fairly with one another as the 14 owners in the National Football League, particularly after some of the things that have gone on in business or on Wall Street. You play a part in the lives of young men, and you help them grow. And then every Sunday, you have the great pleasure of dying. Uh, your father was a monumental figure. Uh, a lot of people may not realize, but he was the very first owner to hire an African American executive in the NFL. That's that's correct. Buddy Young. And, uh, I mean, when you think back, and I that was some time ago in I a mean, southern city. Uh, you know, Baltimore is really uh, you know, right. and and uh, you know, right across the you know, just forty minutes away, the Washington Redskins had an owner who was openly bigoted. You know, um, so it was pretty pretty extraordinary, really. Um, and and that quote kind of does sum up a lot of what I remember about my dad related to football, which was that uh, that you certainly, you know, it was certainly a time to celebrate when when we won, and it was not a time to even be close to him when we lost. Well, you and you and I share in common that passion for that sport because I I was a founding member of the USFL in that's right. And then I went on and owned one of the teams, and then became an agent for over eighty football players. And I, you know, I you can't get me to do anything else because I love the sport. I love the 
a live or die on every, well, it used to be every Sunday. Now it's also Thursday or other Monday or whatever, but uh, it's, well, such a, it's such a phenomenal well, sport. When I was a little boy and I was about 10, 11 years old, my dad had a heart attack. Now, probably came from 50 years of him smoking unfiltered Chesterfield cigarettes, but, um, right. but uh, as a little kid, you know, you, you remember, and I, I, I remember his surgeon saying to him, um, because he, he had some sort of uh, procedure done during the playoffs, and they wouldn't let him near a TV, and they wouldn't let him out of the hospital. And the, the surgeon said to him, um, Carol, you got to remember, it's just a game. And, and, you know, even though we know how passionate we all are about, about football, at the end of the day, you know, um, there, there are so many profound things in life, and um, the experience of the sport and that quote that you just mentioned, I think are ultimately so much more important um, than, than the winning and losing. Obviously, you know, we all want to win, but uh, but the things that he did to contribute to the sport as a sportsman um, mean much more to me than than his his one loss record. Um, but they live on they they live on forever and they change. I, I do want to tell you it, it was a it was a real privilege to meet your mother and to get to know her before she passed, uh, Georgia Frontier. She was she was an incredible woman, and I I still remember the first moment I met her and. I really bonded with her right away, and I just I loved her a lot. I I, I loved being with her and and just talking with her, and she just had such a personality. And well, uh, she yes, yeah, she 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 loved you too. She was, but she was just I mean, a dynamic, charismatic, wonderful person, and and uh, and very um, you know generous to a fault sometimes. Um, and uh, you know, she had I think that that in terms of on the field success, she gets a little bit of a rap, but uh, you know the the Rams of the '80s were very successful under uh, John Shaw, who is a great friend and, and yes. uh, maybe the smartest uh, the smartest NFL guy um, of the last 30 years. And, and uh, you know John well, and and uh, John's just been an incredible friend to, to me and my family. But uh, but those teams won. Um, they had some rough years in the '90s, and then they won again. And you know. Um, and they had some rough years again, and and I think uh, maybe we're seeing a turnaround now. Um, but she, she really, um, she, as a woman in in sports, it it had to be really tough uh, to have this you know um, very strong guy um, who who was a a leader in the NFL, and suddenly um, you're a woman, and you're you know you, you inherit this team, and and. Uh, of all these responsibilities, and you really have to learn the business, and that becomes your identity. And you know, she was an entertainer originally, and and a performer, and, and to to go on, and she won a Super Bowl of her own. And uh, and ultimately, it's a it's you know a lot of people that that complain about uh, about her achievements in the NFL, but there are a lot of owners out there that have never won a Super Bowl and uh, have never had those moments where uh, you know I think I think that. Uh, during her 27 years or so, the, the team made the playoffs uh, 14 or 15 times. They, made, they, they qualified for the playoffs 14. Well, she and was a like, huge contributor. There were like 20-something playoff games in, in her, under her um, ownership. That's It's very impressive. you know. Uh, I, I appreciate I, you saying that uh, about her contribution. She, her passion, though, actually within the NFL 
was something that was very important to Roger Goodell and to me, which is um, retired players. And uh, yep. her dream that she would have liked to have seen in her lifetime was to, uh, to have retirement homes for players in the same way that the motion picture home works for people that work in the motion picture industry. And well, I know you, that, that, that the commissioner is working hard on that. You know, we have a couple minutes left. You know, you sit on a number of boards, including the Fulfillment Fund, a mentoring and scholarship charity based in L.A., and a variety of the children's charity based in St. Louis. And you and your wife, Kathleen, are major donors and president of council members of Feeding America, America's largest hunger relief organization. You know, I want to, in the last really minute and a half we have on the show, it goes like we could do this again and again, and I will get you back on if you'll ever allow me to do that. It might take me a, a while to convince you again, but hopefully you're having hopefully this fun. This was fun. I hope, I hope I was all right. You, you were terrific. <laughs> I would ask you this question that I ask our guests at the end, and that is as you look back on your life and on your journey and the ups and the downs and the many different influences kind of in the next 30 seconds or 50 seconds, what do you feel is the meaning of life, and what kind of advice can you give our younger listeners? Well, you know, I, as, a, as a pretty solidly middle-aged person at 47 years old and looking forward to another many decades uh, of, of life, I, so far what I would say is that, you know, giving back really gives me the most satisfaction. And, I, and being with my family, I have wonderful kids, and I have a wonderful wife. I have a fantastic extended family, my sister and brother-in-law and my nieces and nephews, uh, my niece and nephews and my cousins, my uncle. You know, family is amazing, and it's uh, so important. And for me, the meaning of life is, um, if you can call it the meaning of life, is just to try and make a difference and to, to, to be as good a person as you can. And I think that that's not a relative statement. I think people know what that means. You know inside... You know in your heart what, what being a good person means. And, and if you strive for that, I think that, uh, you know, that, that, will, that will ultimately bring you happiness. I think that's why we're here. And the thing that I would, would say to, to young people is that you can do all of that if you pursue your passion, not to get, not to get hung up on, on somebody else's journey. Well, you, you have done that. You are doing that. I'm honored to be your friend and, and count on many, many more years together. My love to Kathleen. Uh, our time is, uh, is up. Uh, we've enjoyed sharing your journey, Chip Rosenblum, with you, and very appreciative of the time you gave us. I'd like to thank our listeners for turning, tuning into A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, signing off. And Thanks, please join Jimmy. Us next, you're, you're welcome, and please join us next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. And until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, success. And to you, Chip, my dear friend, all my love and support and, and Godspeed. Thank you so much. Thank you. again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week.
stove, the refrigerator, all the pots and pans. The sink? Sure, take the kitchen sink too. Yeah, pretty much everything in the kitchen I could live without if I had to. Except, of course, my Keurig Brewer. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig Brewer is the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info.